0: Welcome to Dr. Thoughts, a smart, driven, and fabulous podcast by
1: Drs. Ryan LaVallee
0: and Kalia Johnson,
1: where sometimes it's about occupation.
0: And sometimes it's just sassy. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Dr. Thoughts podcast. It's everybody's favorite academic diva, Dr. Clea Johnson here with I'm going to say everybody's favorite critical theorist in occupational science Dr. <laughs> Ryan Lavalle. What's up for you?
1: Oh, I'm doing good. I'm excited for today's episode. But also I appreciate that. Um I just listened to our our uh, UNC Instagram's live of our students and they were talking about critical theory. And I was like, oh my gosh, I actually helped someone love theory. Know,
0: didn't <laughs> like Becky a proud Parkins
1: parent? speaking out to theory. <laughs> <laughs> so I was excited um to hear a little bit about that. So that nickname is is quite true, I'll say.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, I'm glad that you love it. But you know what else I love? That today we are joined by the Dr. Rachel Prophet. How are you today?
2: I'm doing just fine.
0: Awesome. We are so excited to welcome you to Dr. Thoughts Podcast and chat a little bit about your new article that was just published in the Occupational Therapy Journal of Research with a few colleagues on hashtag me2oT. Very, very powerful. Very powerful.
1: Absolutely. And um, before Kalia asks our traditional question, can you just give us a little bit of a background as to who you are and um, where you're positioned and, you know, both maybe socially and professionally? (laughs)
2: Sure. Um, So if you Google me, you'll find me at the University of Missouri. I am associate professor there in the Department of Occupational Therapy, been there been here for about seven years, um, absolutely loving it. We're right in the middle of all the flyover states. Um, I've lived coast to coast my um, entire life and career. Um, I do miss being able to swing to the beach. I grew up in New York. Um, and I, as a researcher, look at everything kind of technology related virtual reality, video games, sensor technologies, telehealth, mobile health. Um, I love it all. Um, And I have a particular passion for people that have experienced a stroke and helping them live life to the fullest after they go back home to their community and everything that they want to get back to in their daily lives. Um, You'll find me reading, running, outside, kayaking. I picked that up during the pandemic. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I'm, I'm, a, a I'm a yeah. I'm a Scorpio, so I'm a I'm a water sign. I'm not a big swimmer, but I like being near water. And I and kayaking is one of the being able to be near the water, but not in the water. You yeah. sort of get to like beat the water too, though, right? A little bit, yeah. <laughs> it, it, I I was surprised when I started how um physically taxing it can be. If you're doing it right, you're not just using your arms, you're using your entire core. Um, And so from a workout standpoint, you know, it can be, it can be a bit, um, but it really is just to be able to just float on the water. Um, We have some wonderful rivers here in Missouri. um, And I, I I just, I love getting out there. So I'm looking forward to warmer weather to be able to get back to that.
1: They don't do winter kayaking. Is that not?
2: You can, (laughs) but it requires wetsuits and I I'm, I'm not going to fuss with all that. So, I'm waiting yeah. for the nice the, the the at least 70, 75 degree days to get back out there.
1: Yeah.
2: Oh man, sounds like you need to come down to North Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. I went to, I went to undergrad in Virginia and I I do miss a little bit of the the places where the weather doesn't get quite as cold as it does here or when I lived in New York. Mm-hmm. All
0: right. Well, before we jump into our discussion about, um, you know, hashtag Me Too OT, as uh, Ryan alluded to, we have a bit of a naming tradition on the podcast where we ask our guest hosts to name themselves a favorite. And so um, what would you name yourself as a favorite?
2: Hmm. Um... I will say this: I am, um, at least for my students, and probably faculty as well, everybody's favorite resident, um, uh, um, not foul language expert. But um, I don't, I don't okay. sense, I don't <laughs> censor myself while teaching. So um, I always get fun little chuckles and side glances and giggles from my student when I drop in, you know, f bomb or some other word in oh. class and you know you know what first Amendment like teaching all of that so it's never in a you know profane way against someone else but um sometimes you just drop a little colorful language in and then spice up class a little bit
1: okay we <laughs> need Definitely to bring you back, back for a yeah <laughs> we need to bring you back for a censorship and academia um conversation <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. us us being in North Carolina um you know we we have some things going on right now that are speaking to that. Um,
2: <laughs> yep, so. I'm at the University of Missouri, so I am uh, yeah. very familiar with that. That was right before I started here, so yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow, well, we'll definitely have to keep that in mind for a future episode, for sure. <laughs> Not what we're talking about today, um, but probably just as important of a topic, Um the, the hashtag #metooOT, um The article that you wrote is entitled, Sexual Harassment Experiences of Occupational Therapy Academics and Recommendations for Systemic Change. And um you know we we tend to to try and keep it light and fun here but this is also a pretty serious conversation um so we'll we'll definitely respect that but also bring some flavor into that conversation recognize the realities of um how this is still happening and um and really grateful that you've brought so much attention to it with this article particularly um, not I really appreciated that it was not, it was focused in OT. It wasn't just like broad in the workplace or anything like that, because I think OTs, we sometimes like to say that it we're all great and it doesn't happen to us or we're not participating in these things. So um, I really appreciated that. Um, and so I guess my question to start is sort of what what instigated this? What what made you want to write this article and get this word out a little bit more and and maybe talk a little bit about the study itself and um, what it was?
2: Sure. Uh, it came out of a, uh, a group text thread that I was a part of. Um, that text thread had zero uh, focus on sexual harassment. It was sort of those of us that are uh, early in our careers uh, in academia and OT, um, honestly, to kind of keep ourselves connected and and talking and and support one another through. It just started at the beginning of the pandemic, feel um, as a way to just share what was going on and feel like we weren't so alone. Um, I think there were some unique challenges we were facing there, and uh, came up in just natural conversation in the whole thread. Um, uh, somebody kind of talking about it, and then a couple of questions asked back and forth, and um, not very, you know, deeper detailed stories shared, but um, you know, some inferences and and really light uh, recollections of things that happened, and it it really kind of dawned on me that you know this is like you said, this is something that's still happening. Um, I think initially, not that I thought that it wasn't happening, but. I realized that it wasn't getting the attention that it truly does um, deserve. And so everybody goes, well, you know, this is happening. Somebody should do something about it. And I had that realization that that somebody that needs to do something about it was me uh and I I'm now tenured faculty um while we ran the study I was I've been I was putting my packet in so I knew that eventually when this, this was likely going to come out after I got tenure um and with tenure I believe comes more responsibility to stand up for those that may not have the freedom to say the things that they really do want to say and pursue the avenues of research that such as this um, and so I felt that I had that that responsibility as, as one of the most senior people in our text thread to say, hey, let's let's explore this, um, let's find out what actually is going on, um, let's talk to people, let's do those interviews, let's you know put that survey out there um, and get a sense of is this just something that's happening to people in our group? And I suspected it wasn't, and we found this not the case um, that this is still happening in our field. Um, and kind of get a sense of maybe a better understanding of why this is happening. And then most importantly, what can we do about it? And not just what we think we should do, but what are those those true actionable steps that we can take that those that are in senior positions that can take and the um, organizations can take to A, prevent this from happening again, and um, hopefully you know, help those uh, to whom these awful things have happened. Um, I also knew that I, um, as a kind of personal aside, I have been very fortunate to have not experienced any significant or severe sexual harassment in my career. I've had the, you know, one-off where like a doctor came and like slapped his shoulder, his hand in my shoulder and said, you should smile more. Like, you know, th- those little things that, it, um, you know, that happen Um, if you're a woman, unfortunately, um, but nothing serious. So I knew that coming in, I wasn't going to come in with that bias and, um, that I could tackle this subject. Um, it, it was still hard to do, um, but without knowing that it was going to be, you know, um, emotionally wreck me or something like that. So, um, but let's do it. Um, and we put together, uh, submitted an IRB. It was, uh, exempt, um, cause it's just a survey and we were able to anonymize all the interviews and all that, um, put out a, a, RedCap red cap survey. People were able to, um, respond to different you know, basic demographic questions, they could then either type in um, a response to the, you know, tell us about your um, experience with sexual harassment, um, tell their story, they could upload something if they had previously typed something up or wanted to send in a longer document. And then the other way they could share their story was through an anonymous Zoom interview. Um, And then we uh, audio recorded those, transcribed them and, you know, followed all the um, good procedures for uh, qualitative research or qualitative analyses, and um, the article, you know, has the our primary finding that we can talk more uh, about those as we go. But that was the basic method for this. Um, our my felt my team was from across the U.S. Um, our respondents were from across the U.S. Um, those of us in and all in academia. Um, those of us that. Ran the study were various phases, so I was probably one of the most senior. Down to um, I had uh, with some PhD students involved as well, so we were able to get sort of diverse um, perspectives with regards to um, age and experience in academia. Um, all of us were uh, female identifying taking part in this, and then we only did include those that I, that identified as female, um, be it um, cisgender women or trans women. Mm-hmm. And we also did include those that identified as non-binary as well.
0: Thank you for providing that, sort of giving us a backdrop and some context around the, the conversations that led up to um, the study, but also giving us a little bit more context, too, about um, sort of the privileges and the freedom that you have one, and that, you know, this a study like this coming out after tenure um, and being in a better position to uh, participate in something or at least have your name attached to something that is um, really, uh, I'm going to call it taboo, because um, I, I, I feel like social harassment definitely shouldn't be controversial, right? But we understand that when you are in a more junior, early, early career role, we have to really really consider what are the consequences of us engaging in particular lines of scholarship that may not be received in the best light. Um, And I guess before we lead into our, our next question, there was something that really stood out to me in the introduction of your paper. I really like introductions, especially like an introduction that is well written and and situates um everybody's thinking and it was around you know this idea that sexual harassment is likely to occur in environments where men outnumber women leadership is male dominated or an occupation is considered less traditional for women um, and then, specific to academic context, the theory of sexual harassment specifically indicates that structures of organization, hierarchy, and specific individuals with power, leading to an environment prime for abuse. And in an academic setting, OT departments are embedded within larger colleges of medicine. Rehabilitation science or education lead into frequent collaborations in male-dominated fields, and thus creating those are my words uh, many factors that make <laughs> academic OT practitioners vulnerable to sexual harassment. And I really appreciated that because I know people are first thinking like, "Well, this is a female-dominated
2: field, so what you talking about, girl?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and that was that was something that we we, we really talked we you know that came up, and um, we went you know I, I I think most of us were able to find the statistics like it's ninety percent female. Like, mm-hmm. how is this still happening in our field? Um, when it's 90% female. Right. Um, and, and so that was something we're like, we gotta, we need to look into this more. And I and then we started having those conversations around it truly is, and I think this is what we do well as OTs, we think about the context in mm-hmm. in whatever that occupation is. And so in this case, it's you know, it's our work as as academicians it takes place in a context that honestly is rooted in the patriarchy right academia is so very solidly rooted in the patriarchy um and even in an ot you know field within an ot department honestly even within a school health professions and health professions tend to be more female dominated as well it's still in the bounds of academia and the university that has just it has all those societal norms and expectations that it are just perfect breeding grounds for sexual harassment to occur, unfortunately. And so, you know, even though we are a 90% female field, it's we're within that context. And so um, it does, it, it is, it, it leads to the, it has those factors there. Um,
1: yeah. But- it's interesting. I was just talking with our director about this other sort of space that I was in, in the university recently, where it was like mostly men um, and I was like, this is weird to <laughs> me. <laughs> like, I'm so used to being surrounded by women and working with women, and and also I think in in some instances, societally dictated or not, women lead differently. Um, and so, I, I've just like been in a space where I was like, this is broy. Like, and I have not been in that moment in in a long time. And and also like as a queer person in this space, it was like, this feels different than the type of space that I'm in. And it was just like a helpful reminder that yes, I am in a profession that is dominated by women. But in in many ways, the system is still dominating women, um, and that we are still within that system. Um, But it was also a nice moment to appreciate the the women leaders that I have engaged with and had, um, because I was in a space that was not (laughs) led by that.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I think that the background is is really important. Um, I went to a woman's college for undergrad, the 800 women, very small school in Southwest Virginia. It's now co-ed. Um, to be in that space for four years and then to come out, you know, even going into, you know, an OT program, again, very small cohort, you know, most OT programs you stay with the same people, it's fairly sheltered, right? Um, but just the way that I approached those situations, being in leadership roles, having had that undergrad experience significantly shaped how I move forward as as a leader um, and in academia that's I think is different from my peers that went to, you know, a co-ed institution. I didn't realize how profound an effect it would have on me um, until I re- you know, reflecting back years later. Um yeah. So and 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 I think then it's for me then kind of the the fr- also Sort of a little bit of framing for this paper. Um you know, knowing that the the truly the context does matter and shape that. And so um, if you look at our findings, the way we sort of we have sort of our, our primary theme, but we sort of envisioned it like a quilt, if you will, so there's that backing, that sort of underlayment to all the pieces on top um, is the context of our profession. Um, But situated within the context of academia, and I think that that backing the quilt, I think, is going to change depending on the institution, you know, at which that person is. Um, So that was that was kind of an sort of interesting finding the way we started thinking about um, what we heard from people and and we're integrating all the themes together. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And it seems like. um... And before we jump into the findings, so based on your introduction, this isn't an area of sort of like longstanding research from you, or it maybe even because I actually know quite a few of the authors, um, and not necessarily an expertise of many of them, but in many ways, I think it's a testament to like if you're in this realm, there's a process and there's a way to ask new questions. Like you don't always have to be 10 years into a research trajectory to ask a really good question and do really good research that that really dives into it. As long as you use it in a good process and you use the the appropriate systems to get at that data well. So I just wanted to name that. And that, you know, I think that being a pioneer sometimes means stepping out of those sort of um maybe familiar expertises into a new realm. Um, and so in that did you did you sort of obviously, I feel like you learned something because you learned something from everything right. Um, but as you sort of prepared to step into this work, um you know, what was it? what were there big things that sort of came to you that was like wow, this is this is huge, this is something I've learned through this process
2: I you know I think i hmm. I don't know if there were any big, you know, sort of wow moments I came across there. I I went in, maybe not not knowing what we were going to find. I kind of had an expectation of what we were going to to find. Um, I think one of the 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 I guess hardest things, and that's you know one of the questions you would pose me uh, before jumping into this was, what was the hardest thing to to do in this whole process for me it was it was writing the results section um i went in you know knowing that uh, kind of as a scientist right i'm trying to be as unbiased and as you know uh you know going without any expectations as to what i'm going to find um and you know and Obviously, qualitative research—you have to have a recognition of of those biases that you have. Um, understand the context. Uh, you know, you take notes, and, and we sort of have a, a a framing piece to to our work. Um, you know, we put in put into context both the, the the research as well as us as the as the researchers, um, and how that may um, sort of sway the way that we. Uh, you know went through and did our content you know thematic analysis um but for you know i tried to go in sort of not planning to lean one way or the other no i'm going to read you know i'm going to read through these these transcripts and and read the stories um i didn't personally conduct any of the the interviews i was able to read the transcript but even just reading the transcripts and then getting to the point of of writing those themes and then writing out the results section that was so hard it normally I can knock out a results section in like an hour, um, you know, a little longer if it's, you know, fairly complex data, but, um, I've written qualitative papers before and, it doesn't take me very long. This took me a long time. Um, and I was mentally exhausted at the end of it. Um, and I had to, I had to go step away. I had to go do something that wasn't work, um, to just get my head in a in a clear space and then come back and edit and editing it was a little bit easier but writing it, it was just it was so heavy um it was just reflecting that these these women these victims had been through these this off these awful awful experiences um it was I, you know, as OTs, right? We we empathize with our with our clients. Um, you know, even if we've never been through that situation, we can we can have that empathy. Um, you know, it's like I can empathize, but I feel like that's not enough. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, like what do you even say and and if you were to talk to someone in those situations? Uh and so that's what I felt like. I felt so like helpless too. I mean I know I I know I'm doing something by writing this paper but I <laughs> I feel like you know see these things happen and I just you know we couldn't be there um and that was that was that was that was tough to do. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think you've touched on something that um you know everyone who writes on very heavy topics or ones that have huge implications for folks um Safety, you know, particularly those that are in vulnerable positions, because, um, understanding correctly that like there some of the victims represented in the paper are students, too, right? So people who are in um, in in positions where they have you know male authority, um, over them, but the sort of like you say, saying, the having to take take a moment to you know, engage in some sort of practice where you're able to take care of yourself, right? But sort of having those moments where you felt helpless that, you know, you weren't able to necessarily do that for participants. That yes, the the paper itself is is published and available open access, which is also huge in and of itself um, in academia. But have you all considered other ways that you might be able to leverage the study, weaponize it in some way that really, um, moves forward some sort of efforts around addressing um, sexual harassment for OT academicians.
2: Yeah, and I, I you know, hopefully, coming in this podcast, in, uh, one way at least of you know just getting the 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 word out. Um, and so, like I said earlier, you know, I felt with tenure, I have this this responsibility um, to try and make some, to to get this published, but then to also try and make some change happen. Um, And so one of my next goals is to, um, what can we do at the level, the organizational level? Um, You know, knowing that at the the institutional level, it's going to be uh, sort of different for every institution, right? Um, But I think for those of us that are in academia and OT, you know, we have organizations like AOTF, AOTA, um, that kind of connect. All of us in that realm um, and what can we do at that level to um, make some change happen and not just oh let's put out a statement um, for something oh. you know it's what are those policies and procedures that we can that maybe then,
1: they then retract is that is that what might happen
2: <laughs> what say again
1: i said put out a statement that then they might retract or
2: yes something like <laughs> yes <sure>. well um <laughs> uh, you know, but I, 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 I think there's, you know, right now there are some some processes in place. We have our ethics committee, right, as part of, of AOTA, um, and they, from the commission on ethics, they reside under um, the representative assembly, um, and so having I currently serve on the RA, my term ends the end of June, um, be able to give them a little more power. Um, right now they are able to, um, you know, things can be brought to them as the um, ethics violation, but they don't have subpoena power. Um, and so if somebody were to come and report um, sexual harassment occurring with as an OT, um, and so those of us in academia, typically most of us are OTs, um, there are those that are not. But do work under OT departments, Uh, so there. You know what if they can't like subpoena in the person who um, is the harasser, um, the abuser. What can we do about it? Um, Then you know that person then also tends to serve on things like review boards, editorial boards, associations, um, and being able to what giving a little more um, you know power to. Uh, individuals that bring complaints forward, as well as the organizations themselves, and have those policies in place that, like, if this happens, then there are these consequences. Um, one of the themes that came out of the paper is the unbalanced consequences. Um, oftentimes, you know, the the victim experiences all kinds of, um, you know, mental health issues. We had people that literally dropped out of the field. Were pursuing a PhD, OTD, some sort of doctoral degree and are, they never finished and aren't planning to come back. That is a brilliant mind that is now lost. Um, Mm -hmm. so to, and whereas the abuser, um, the perpetrator, they have a little slap on the wrist and, you know, they're still they still have all their credentials and titles associated with their name. They have all their publications associated with their name. Um, you know, they may have maybe lost a little bit of funding or, you know, had to maybe leave the institution at, at, at best but then they're still there in the field. Um, whereas this, the, you know, the, the victim is um, not pursuing what they they were going to and what they probably truly loved and wanted to do
1: um so i think that's that's a really important point though because i think a lot of people might react to this and say well isn't it the employer's job isn't it you know the other institution's job and yes it is their job for sure to address these perpetrators or abusers Um, But at the same time, we're also in our own field and we're we're in our own sort of system of a profession and there's responsibility there in creating protection um, and safety for people. Um, And no, they don't have direct sort of um, influence over their employment or all of those things. You know, that's like human resources and HR stuff like people will always use that as a defense as to why they shouldn't take action. But if they're still in the field, if they're still practicing as an OT or an OT practitioner in general, like that's still contributing to an unsafe space for a lot of people. Um, and so our professional organizations are the only people who could really um, take that. I mean, and our licensure boards and that sort of thing. Um, but those, there is a responsibility there. Um, you know, I think often we want to give our our professional organizations a little bit of a an excuse that it's it's not within their realm to address these sorts of things. Um, but if we want to talk about the profession, then they are sort of the, the keepers of the profession, at least here in the U S. Right. Um, so I just think that that's really helpful um, to frame it that way. Um, yeah. Because people yeah.
0: people forget about the ethical responsibility we have, right? I mean, you named it. We have an ethics board. That is a breach of professional ethics. Um, and to, not hold our associations accountable and being involved in those ethical breaches, yeah, it gives you leeway to just say like, hey, let's take your money for everything else, but we don't really do anything.
2: Um, so if nothing else uphold professional ethics. Yeah, Yeah. I think that's honestly one of the blind spots of our profession is we like to just um, we like to be happy and go about (laughs) everything as if a lot of these things aren't happening. They are happening um, and they will continue to happen unless we do something and put those policies and procedures in place to protect the victims in this case. Um, And, uh, you know, speaking specifically to sexual harassment, there are a lot of other um, things, too, that our professional organization needs to address. This is one we're kind of talking about right now and i can i can talk about i think how this touches you know on uh other you know sort of dei related issues that we're talking about but not necessarily doing anything about um you know it's the <laughs> yeah i and and we oftentimes <laughs> yeah <laughs> Hold on, calm down here for a second um <laughs> i, oh, I think, don't calm
1: down we love okay. the energy
2: <laughs> um i you know I, I think the other thing too is that um these things need to be in place now and not as a reaction to something that has happened, but do it proactively before it continues to happen. Because we know it is happening and it will continue to happen unless we put things in place to help prevent this from happening more um, and in additional other contexts. Um, so many of these stories that were shared, often they, they often happened at, pr- at professional conferences. Um, and so oftentimes that 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 is a gray area for institutions right um, it may be that they helped fund the travel for the perpetrator for the victim to get to that conference but is that part of their university duties they're no longer on site they're somewhere else they're at a professional conference where where, where does that fall? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the stories that were shared that were are because it didn't you know um, <laughs> it. it that I think that was one of the frustrating things for me as well is that um, this is going to keep happening at at conferences and things like that, especially to, um, at some of these professional conferences that are more interdisciplinary. You're going to come across and have interactions with people that are not in the field of OT. Um, so what does that mean um, for, you know, our professional organization related to, you know, our commission on ethics um, for the perpetrator that may not be an OT, but against, um, you know, victim who is an occupational therapy practitioner. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know. Uh, You know, we don't have we don't have those those clear delineations and definitions in place. And so I think those are things we need to talk about and put more clarity into um, the policies that we we have in place. Um, What if it is something that's at a social event, right? we, and if you read through some of the quotes and, and the stories that were shared, um, oftentimes it was like walking back in the streets of a city somewhere mm. um, as a one-on-one situation. Mm. Um, it wasn't like in, you know, a university office, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, that it gets so unfortunately gray and muddled when it comes to those, you know, the the laws and the policies that we have in place. Uh I and I I think then the other piece is um, helping provide education to uh, to students when they're going through PhD programs, um, postdoctoral programs, and to faculty to be and and um, you know senior administrators to be able to su- to support them. Honestly, prior to writing this paper, if a student had come to me and told me about an experience, I don't think I would have known how to move forward with that. Now I do. Um, mm-hmm. And that wasn't something that was, it was never discussed when I was going through grad school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so many people share that, you know, this wasn't ever talked about when I was, you know, going through getting my PhD, you know, doing a postdoc, um, even as faculty, uh, we just, like, one of the other themes in our paper was we don't talk about it. Um, like as said, as a profession, we just, like I said, we go about all happy la-di-da, everything's okay. Um, this isn't happening. Yeah, it actually is. Um, and we need to talk about it. We need to talk about it with our students before something happens to them. What do you do? Um, how do you how do you say no? Um, the other thing that came through is that, you know, we and and we were very careful when we wrote this, that many of our victims were OTs. We empathize. Um, we turn on that OT side of our brain when honestly, sometimes we're in danger to try and figure out why is this person, you know, talking like this or acting like this, right? Um, I, for me, I would think about it as working with somebody who's had a brain injury or, or a you know, a mental health condition, like trying to help sort of talk them down. <laughs> um, and so, and a lot of our victims, unfortunately that for, for them in the situation, that's where they went because that's what they know and that's what they're good at. Um, and they, they, uh, it's it's something that 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 we do so well as OTs, um, how you know, providing you know some more education and, and training to uh, students and faculty to say like in these situations, like this is what might happen, um, and um, to I, I I'm one where you know practicing things in front of a mirror can sometimes help. I mean, you can never practice for a situation like mm-hmm. that. You, you, you can't um but if we can give people some tools and give people the tools to um, be able to have a more Swift or a more comprehensive um, a more just response when something does happen uh, I think is also going to be key um the we were we were we were very careful to uh, avoid any of that victim blaming because they are truly victims in this situation. All contexts aside, um, it is the perpetrator's fault for doing what they did to um, the victims that that were mentioned in our paper.
1: Um, Yeah, I think you're giving me, uh, this is is like Sandra Bullock is coming into my brain. (laughs) Um, like I'm having a, a nostalgia 2000 miscongeniality where it's like Ot just wants to be like we all want world peace, but Sandra Bullock gets on stage and says, you know, like harsher punishment for, for for parole violators, Stan. And I feel like that's that's what we're saying here. You know, it's like we we're just sort of yes, we all want this to be better, but here are some mechanisms, here are some strategies, here. It's not that we also need to therapize victims so much to just deal with it. We also need to actually have harsher punishment for the people creating these problems in the first place and and really take action to prevent um, these sorts of things to make sure that those perpetrators and abusers aren't doing it in the first place um you know and so i don't know it's just sort of like that whole moment uh, the ot being like a a miss universe person (laughs) like needing to get a bit more real with the actions that we need to be taking to create change in this issue um sort of i don't know i just it was coming to me
0: (laughs) Yeah. He, you yeah. already shared a little bit about, you know, what it is that, you know, people can do sort of in the context of academia, right? And a little bit about what our professional associations can do. Um, but what other recommendations do you have for how occupational therapy practitioners who are also not with. With you know, practicing in academia. Oh, well, I guess we practice academics, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> and not not in this context. Like what what else can they do? Um, and, and also speaking specifically to our our male identifying occupational therapy practitioners, right? Um what else do you see as as avenues of support and advocacy and 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 change for for us around this
2: particular issue? The biggest thing. Mm-hmm. believe the victims.
1: Mm.
2: I think that that is of utmost importance um, to associations, to um, those that are senior mentors, senior colleagues, senior occupational therapy practitioners, um, our male identifying OT practitioners, believe the victims when they tell you the first time. We heard so many stories of, oh, it's just... You know you you were just looking at that the wrong way like I'm sure they didn't mean it that 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 gets under my skin so much I'm sure they didn't mean it like that mm. um I'm sure I'm sure it was just a harmless you know little gesture um they didn't mean oh, I don't I don't think yeah they didn't they didn't mean to you know put their hand on the small of your back or touch the back of your neck Ah. <laughs> uh, um And, and, you know, also to our, to everyone um, that, you know, if, if someone comes and tells them about something, or if you're just, you're in, as we talk about context, right? If you are in a context and an individual, if something just feels off, you're likely not off base. Um, And then, especially if you are a male identifying OT practitioner, go talk to those that are female identifying that work with you and have a conversation. Like, are you also getting that vibe? from them. Um, And because again, you're likely not, not too far off base. Um, And then those that do have the privilege to speak up in those situations. So those that are senior leaders, um, unfortunately in academia, those that are male identifying OT practitioners in academia, like it comes with, with privilege from, you know, identifying as male, speak up, um, amplify, the voices of victims, um, amplify the voices of, uh, you know, those that are unfortunately experiencing the abuse and, and amplify those voices before things happen. Um, do what you can to get those policies and procedures in place. Um, the, the other thing, you know, those in, in leadership roles, talk to your mentees, to your students, to your peer mentees um, about it now. Um, if you don't know how title IX reporting works at your institution, if you don't know what those procedures are, learn them, um, read about them. And if you can't find them, figure out where they are and then start sharing them with people. Cause if you couldn't find them, likely somebody else couldn't find them either. Um, and you know, have, have those conversations now. And sometimes you might things find things kind of crawling out of the woodwork, um, and I think too, then going about those that that process of of educating yourself and and talking about it, um, then potentially be prepared for uh, people coming to talk to you and sharing their stories. Um, mm. it's, you may find that you know if you wind up opening yourself up more and and showing your support, um you know, you may see that you're you're a safe space for this now. Um, and that and- actually
1: that brings me to a question because, um, you know you I think we we talk about this a little bit in the sort of just general diversity you know equity and inclusion world of like you know invite people in but be prepared to receive them right and and to be able to um, like tend your soil and make sure that you can land the seed of whatever relationship they're about to bring in there in, in a positive way. And so when people are coming, and you mentioned this a little bit before, who are women of color or are queer, um, you know, how can people prepare to support sort of the intersectional um, groups within this? It's, OT isn't all white women. (laughs) Um, I'll say there are a few lesbians out there. (laughs) (laughs) um, You know, so, um, but it's also, you know, we're, we're, we are diverse in some ways. So what what advice do you have to those of us who want to receive those people well um, and what we need to know about this issue in relation to them?
2: Um I mean, I think you know, a lot of the a lot of the things are similar. Um, you know, continue educating yourself on, you know, d- those policies and procedures aren't going to uh to change. Um they're gonna be what they are. Um I think also, too, then looking at those policies and procedures um with an equity lens to say are they truly equitable for you know, women of color, um, queer people coming to you? Are they going to get the same support moving forward in that process as someone who is white-identifying, you know, cis, cisgender female-identifying? Um, and you start to you know, question some of those and um, maybe it's coming back to your institution to say like, yeah, this is great, but um, there are these sort of you know, potential barriers in place uh, to you know, somebody wanting to go through that whole process um i think you know and yeah i don't know if there's like a, a way to prepare yourself um but i think also then having conversation um you know you yourself with people of color with queer people to get a sense of like you know what their experience is like however um the work needs to be for, on you not on them for educating yourself um, I think that is a big thing, especially for, you know, yeah, okay, fine. There were all of us, you know, we're all female identifying um, uh, OT practitioners that wrote this paper, right? So we did some of this work right now to get this paper out. I am um, I am personally putting forward the work to, you know, do this podcast, to reach out, to share it, because I feel like that's the work that I want to do. Um, but, you know, for our male identifying OT practitioners, like, take the time and don't just come in and go, hey, tell me what to do. Um no. I love the voice that came out. (laughs) Um, I I have a relatively low voice anyways, but um, you know, to 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 you know come in with with specific questions as to you know what what are some of the things you know that you know you find difficult, where are those barriers? Um and then do that reflection process yourself of all right, what are the things that I can do and how can I use my privilege going forward?
0: hmm
2: yeah no thank you for for sharing those and so as
0: we sort of get closer to the end of our our time together like what are the sort of the the take-home messages like if there if you if there's nothing else you want you know people to take
2: away from the paper in our conversation today like what would you want that to be I think obviously the, the two biggest things you know we say this over and over it's still happening, and it will happen. Um, it will continue to happen, truly, unless like those those systems change. Um, and academia as a system is going to take major overhaul outside of OT to change. But um, I think there are little things that we can do, especially those that know that they are in a position of privilege to help start making those change and move you know, move the needle a little bit. So that's one. The other take home is believe the victims um, and get that mantra in your head. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we always have the, well, what was she wearing? (sighs) Right? Um, Yes, context is important, but I think it's the framing of, you know, of, of how and why everything happened it's it is never ever ever the fault of the victim um and believe them talk with them you know hear they truly hear and understand their story um i think that is that goes a long way we heard so many stories of people that were like yeah but you know um i'm sure yeah i'm sure they didn't mean that or um i'm or a lot of the well, I'm kind of sorry it's it's happening, but um, you know they're a they're a rising star um, or they're kind of retaliatory, so maybe you don't want to bring this forward. Um, and these were people that were in positions of power to actually do something, and they they didn't um, because of those biases that they had. Um, so you know, use your privilege and speak up. And also, don't assume that somebody else is going to take care of it. Don't assume that the victim is going to report it um, truly hear them and, and, and talk with them, sit with them, um, and, you know, be that support because if they do want to move forward, you walk through that with them. If you are the, the one that, you know, is in that leadership position that they're, they're coming to, you know, a department chair or something like that, um, you know, as a senior, um, administrator, um, or if, you know, it's unfortunately a, a you know same level colleague as yourself. Um, be there for you know help be their support system if you have the the mental energy and, and the emotional capacity to do so. Um, with all of this, uh, we're going to read the paper. Um, I, I hope as you read it, you take some time to truly read through it. Um, and and it's a tough read it is a very tough read. Um, I've had a lot of people read it and then write back to me and say, wow, that was, that was hard to get through. Um, it was hard to write. It's still, I, I've got back and read it a couple of times. It's, it's, it is tough to read. Um, if you do want to read it, like get yourself in the right headspace before you do so. Um, cause it can be, it's, it can be a lot.
1: Yeah, and, and I think I mean we we didn't dive so much into the results I think so that people will read the paper. <laughs> um but also if there was sort of uh, the the important result, the one or the the one point from your results or the story, not the story but the narrative of your results that you think would be important to highlight for people that they they can take with them going in to read the the paper. What what do you think that would be?
2: I think one piece that we haven't talked about, um we kind of talked about in the beginning of that we call it the power differential, as sort of the thread weaving its way through everything, is that there is, and in most of these cases, that imbalance of power, be it um, you know, supervisor student, Um, supervisor, employee. Um, Sometimes it did happen to people that were, you know, equal level in terms of, you know, job or status as student, faculty, that sort of thing. Um, In that case, it was a male, female identification um, imbalance of power. Um, And so that was was one of the things that sort of wove its way throughout all of the themes um, as to why there were those unbalanced consequences. Mm-hmm. um because of that power differential um why we don't talk about it uh in the field of occupational therapy um men do hold more leadership positions like uh, relative to the percentage that hold leadership positions is out of balance with the percentage of male identifying ot practitioners in our field if that mm-hmm. makes sense um it you know it it wove its way when we're talking about the uh, one of the other the other pieces to it as well is that we had this sort of people had this this like how did I how did this happen to me I think that kind of goes along with like the we don't talk about it because we don't talk about it a lot of our our uh, victims were like how did I even get like how did it get to this point like um, and reflecting back and realizing like oh my God that that actually did happen to me. Um, and we, and sometimes that power rears its head in very sneaky ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, and you talk about like the grooming process. like that was uh, a theme that went through some of our uh, some of our interviews. Um, and so I think again, it comes back to the 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 key takeaways of that this is still happening, um, and we need to believe the victims the first time and t- and keep talking about it um because it is happening.
1: Yeah, and and this is not a, a whataboutism, um, but I'm interested, did you have any stories of non-male perpetrators or abusers?
2: Um, we did. There were a couple of really short ones of um of faculty that were it was it was not like it was it was I would it was considered sexual harassment. Um a student that uh, came into their office and kind of had some very suggestive and um, sexual remarks towards the uh, the victim that um, I believe uh, did did identify as queer, um, and so the student kind of felt like you know mm. I'm gonna cross that you know that line, uh, but it'll be okay. Uh, and I think yeah. that, so. That was that was some of the things that the that the victim talked about um, when they uh, recounted their experience. Um, that was the the one instance that, that uh, was reported as part of our study. Um, but most were um, male identifying perpetrators and female identifying victims.
1: Yeah, and I think and and I say that it's not a what aboutism because I think that's just a really important thing to name outright that like most of this is being done by male identifying people. Um, You know, and it's not that that's the only people who are doing it by any means, but that it is a real issue that needs to be addressed with men (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and that action needs to be taken towards men and male identifying people um, to redress this issue. Um, And yes, it is at large that we need everyone to be educated about this, but specific action needs to be taken towards male identifying people to to address this. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just think that that's important to name um as a clear <laughs> like.
2: yeah. and I, identifying what those power differentials are because typically they are that you know it is that male versus female identifying that that that, that privilege that comes in the context of academia, unfortunately um, and so that's that's why I think we found what we found and why the um, why there was that imbalance of power between the perpetrators and victims relative to you know gender identity. hmm Mm-hmm. All
0: right. Well, for our listeners again, please go to the Occupational Therapy Journal of Research website or to Sage Journals, and then search for OTJR, the Occupational Therapy Journal of Research. Um, the name of the article again: Me to OT Sexual Harassment Experiences of Occupational Therapy Academics. And recommendations for systemic change with lead author Dr. Rachel Prophet and colleagues. We really, really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today um, about this important topic and you know what is needed to address it. Um, in our academic settings, but really more than anything how we address it as occupational therapy practitioners in our professional um, associations and governing bodies. Um, and so we'll we'll leave all final final words with you. Um, any departing words for our podcast listeners? <laughs>
2: Um, I, I mean, I, I hit home my, my big points. Um, like I said, if you go to read it, get yourself in the right headspace to read it. Um, and you know, I think as you read, reflect on your own internal biases, um, sit with the things that pop up in your head. Why are you, why, why did you, why did you think that, um, you know, what are you hearing when you, when you read this, the, the quotes, you know, from the stories of our victims, um, and then, you know, if you've got a passion for advocacy, and I hope most people do, um, you know, feel free to reach out to me. Um, you can, you can Google my name and University of Missouri, my um, page is public and email is public. Um, I'm happy to chat and have further conversations. Um, and I, I hope we can see this continue to move forward and like it is, it is in the title of the paper, make that change, because um, something does need to happen. Or this is going to keep happening.
1: Well, thank you again very much. And we will see you all next time on Dr. Thoughts.
0: All right. Bye, y'all.